This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Our second is from the Gospel according to Mark. We began on the verse 32 through 40. It is a word not only for the early church in the middle of the first century. It is a word for us today. Mark 10:32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then he said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we would like you now to join us right now on the road that we're on. We're on it collectively, as a world. And we're on it individually. And only you know what we need to hear. So we ask that by your Spirit, we may, in Jesus' name, amen. Halloween night, New Year's Eve, July the 4th, they were all the same to me. Because 25 years ago, I worked evenings and nights as a registered nurse in a small rural hospital just south of the Washington-Canadian border. The hospital was so small that it only had 17 med-surge beds, two emergency department beds, four cardiac monitored beds, and two labor and delivery beds. The staff was so small that we were scheduled for only one registered nurse 
and as many LPNs and nurses' aides as the nurse needed. The physician, the cardiologist, the radiologist, the laboratory technician just needed to be, what's needed to be within 20 minutes of the hospital. So you can see, holiday nights were difficult for me because on those nights, many foolhardy accidents took place by those who were just trying to have fun. You can then understand why getting behind the wheel, driving to work, I sometimes had shaky hands. My heart was thumping in my chest because I knew the risks that lay before me. Do you feel right now that you are heading into risks, unknown hardships that are before you? Who wants to know the future. In our scripture today, verse 32 through 34, we find his disciples to know the future. Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Amazed. It's a word that means they were astounded. They were stupefied. It's what happens when the normal state of affairs is no longer there, and it leaves us with a state of surprise and fear. We've all experienced it during this week. You go to the neighborhood grocery store, and there is no toilet paper, not a single roll. So you drive to Costco. And from floor to ceiling, there's still no toilet paper. We are amazed. We're stupefied. The disciples were also afraid. They were alarmed. They were terrified. Two years ago, I was at Roxbury Presbyterian Church, which hosts weekly a group of residents in Dorchester and Roxbury and greater Boston, those who have been traumatized in some way or another by life events. A trauma counselor got up to address the residents who were feeling afraid. She said, when people are afraid, they fight, they go in flight, they freeze, or they collapse. I would like to add another to the list. When people are afraid, they also stockpile. The disciples are astonished and afraid. And we may feel this way too. We are aware of an approaching crisis. There's simply no frame of reference for this pandemic. Never has anything so devastating touched the world or all of society. So in this text, we hear that they were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the end of the line for Jesus. The feeling of finality hung in the air. For years now, we have been inundated with the production of end-of-the-world movies. The genre got its classic start in 1953 with the film version of 
H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds. On black and white TV, I used to watch Lost in Space and The Twilight Zone. Then came the Black Zone. Then came the blockbuster movie, Independence Day, followed by years of one version or another of zombie apocalypse. Then Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games and Brad Pitt's World War Z. But why does going up to Jerusalem make the disciples afraid? Isn't Christianity all about good news? You know, God is love. Jesus came to heal, feed the multitude, touch the marginalized, bring hope to the poor. Yes, doing good, teaching the way of God is what Jesus did. But that is not why he came. Jesus came to bear the sin of the world through his suffering and his death. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem to fulfill pain. And he wants his disciples to know what will happen. Does he share it in order to scare them? Absolutely not. Jesus wants his disciples to know what will happen in order to assure them and encourage them. So Jesus took his disciples aside and began to tell them what was about to happen. Now, taking them aside was not out of courtesy to the traveling speed of the crowd, nor was it the first incident of social distancing. Jesus took the disciples aside so that he could send them the strongest signal possible that what he was about to say was of utmost importance. You will notice that Jesus says it to the disciples not to the crowds. Disciples are disciplined learners. If someone is a disciple of an exercise coach or a yoga instructor, they are disciplined learners. The 12 disciples intentionally followed Jesus, heard what he taught. They did as he did. They went where he sent. The crowds around Jesus are spiritually curious. Being with Jesus as part of the crowd does not make one a disciple. A disciple decides and commits to being with Jesus all the way. In verse 32, we also notice that Jesus is leading. He's leading. He does not send the disciples into an uncertain future alone. He goes with them and ahead of them. He, is a, he goes with them and ahead of them. He is ahead of us and with us in this very troubling time in world history. Verse 33 and 34, he says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit upon him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise again. Jesus knows that he will be handed over. Jesus knows that the religious leadership will condemn him. Jesus knows that the Roman governor Pilate, whose soldiers will mock, spit, 
and flog him before nailing him to a cross to die. Jesus knows this will happen. There's something else that Jesus knows. He wants his disciples to know it as well. After three days, he will rise again. Now, you may say, if Jesus knows the horrific things that lie ahead, why does he not hightail it and get out of there? If he's the Messiah, why does he allow this betrayal and failure in leadership? Why does he permit the pain and the suffering and the death? Why does he allow it? He does it so that we may not perish, but may have everlasting life. Former late night talk host David Letterman once interviewed an extreme mountaineer named Aaron Ralston. According to the Chicago Tribune, according to the Chicago Tribune, Ralston used a pocket knife to sever his lower right arm, which had been pinned beneath an 800-pound boulder in remote Utah Canyon for five days. After doing that surgery on himself, he rappelled down, walked three hours, and was spotted by a helicopter. Three months later, he was on national TV explaining all of this to David Letterman, who was profoundly moved. With the interview wrapping up, Letterman wondered aloud, could everybody have done this? Ralston replied, if you had a choice to go through an hour of pain in order to live another 60, another 60 years, you would have done the same thing. Jesus walked toward the events that were before him so that we might live not just another 60 years, but for eternity with him. Jesus said, John 16, 33, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus wants his disciples to know the future. Now, going on into verses 35 and 37, we find how the disciples respond. The disciples want to control the future. Jesus had just told them, told them. He did so in chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31. And do you know what happens each time Jesus tells them about the suffering he is about to endure? Each time they jockey for the most favorable outcomes for themselves. They're looking out for number one. We had a former nanny living with us, and any time she heard something outrageous, she had this response. Oh, my goodness! That's what I want to say when I see how James and John respond. Oh, my goodness! James and John, when they hear Jesus talk about their future, 
with his untold suffering and unjust death, they want to ask for priority seating. It's like the two guys who heard that a pandemic was coming and bought up all the hand sanitizer in the area so that they could sell it at an exorbitant profit. It's like dumping stocks after an intelligent briefing. And yes, buying up toilet paper to last a lifetime. James and John approach Jesus and they say, verse 35, Teacher, um, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. They ask Jesus to sign a blank check. That's because they want to control their future by making Jesus their servant. They honor Jesus in hope of honoring themselves. It's worship of God mixed in a cocktail of self-interest. A little for you, a little for me. It's like coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, your job is to listen saying, Jesus, your job is to make me happy, secure, and successful. Rise above it all even while the rest of the world is suffering. Jesus, please, do whatever I ask of you. Jesus is not our servant. We're invited to be his disciples, committed learners, that we might be with him wherever he goes. Jesus is going to the cross to receive God's judgment against the sin of humankind. My sin and your sin. And what he does is he damns sin and sin's consequence, which is death. On the third day, he will rise. Do we know this? Do we even care? Bible scholar and pastor Archbishop, who was hearing the confessions of three hardened teenagers in the church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it. They met with the archbishop and they confessed to a long list of ridiculous, grievous sins that they had not committed. To them it was all a joke. The archbishop could see through what they were doing. He played along with the first two who ran out of the church laughing. But then the third prankster approached the archbishop. After hearing his mocking confession, the archbishop said, Okay, you've confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church. I want you to look at the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. I want, I want you to look at his face and say, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. I want you to do that three times. So the boy went up to the front. He looked at the picture of Jesus, and he said, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And then he said it again, but he couldn't say it the third time because he broke down in tears. The archbishop telling the story said, the reason I know that story is true is because I was that young man. There's something about the cross 
Something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over all the theoretical discussions, all the possibilities of how we explain it, this, and it grasps us. And when we are grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that what is grasping us is the love of God. Have you been grasped by the love of God? Or are you still trying to control the future? Finally, in this text, we see that. Verse 38 through 40. Jesus shares his future with us. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Jesus does not give the disciples what they ask. His cup, his cup or portion divinely allotted by God is his violent death. God's wrath on human sin is Jesus alone to drink. Jesus does not give them his baptism, which is Jesus' solidarity with us sinners. His willingness to bear our judgment before God. Jesus does give them what they are called to be. Disciples who bear the cost of discipleship. Disciples who are with him forever. Now and in glory. You will drink. You will be baptized, Jesus said. Jesus shares his future with us. Not by giving us control over the future, but by giving us, by giving us what we need to be his disciples so that his future is also ours. Chester Nimitz was the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Ocean areas in World War II, commanding allied air, land, and sea forces. We, ourselves, are now at war against a mighty enemy, a virus. Nimitz himself was at war, as was our country, and he had his own role to play, just like we do. Listen to what Nimitz says about his faith and about how that he made. Quote, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all the things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. 
I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for, almost despite myself. My unspoken prayer, almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I, among all men, most richly blessed. Jesus wants his disciples to know the future. We want to control the future to our advantage. But Jesus shares his future with us, those who put their faith in him. What more could we ask? I close with the final paragraph of the final book in C.S. Lewis' series, The Chronicles of Narnia. The title of the book is The Last Battle. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful not write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks. Please, God, give me Jesus, God. Give me Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. We gather today as your scattered church. You've brought us here in a place of worship. Some of us are new to the faith. Some of us have been on this journey a long time. Our hearts are heavy this day, Lord Jesus. Our world groans with the sights of what's before us unfolding. And we sigh with fear, some with anger, and all with grief. We cannot comprehend what is taking place around us. We cry today with the, the concerns and sorrows on our heart are too many to count. But we ask that you would hear us as we bring them all to you. And in the silence of our heart, we name them before you. Those who are ill in body, whose illness is long or short, painful or difficult, hear our silent prayer, O Lord. Jesus Christ, Lover of all, give them yourself and the victory of your future. We name now before you 
all who are engaged in medical research, with the agencies of health and welfare of others, those who serve on the front line of hospitals and clinics. Hear our prayer for these, O Lord. Jesus Christ, lover of all, give them yourself. Encourage and strengthen them in their labors. Lord, we name before you those who are troubled in mind, distressed by the present times, dreading the future, and all who find themselves trapped and cast down by fear. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Jesus Christ, lover of all, give them yourself and may they find true comfort in your cross and know that you will never fail or forsake them. Lord Jesus, we pray for the needs of families who are working and schooling from home and for those who live alone and feel the emptiness of isolation now more than ever. Hear our prayer. Jesus Christ, lover of all, give them yourself as the peace that binds and your presence that lights up any gloom. Lord, we do pray for our ministry with Sunday sandwiches and the food bank. We pray for our sister congregation, Roxbury Presbyterian Church and Pastor Walker. And we pray, O oh Lord, for the opportunity to give in one great hour of sharing. Thank you that you hear our prayers. And as you taught your disciples to pray, we join our voices saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.